This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. To those looking for some explanation for the gun violence that erupts all too often, the state of mental health in America and lack of attention to the issue rise to the top of the list no matter where you stand politically. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has described mental health as, quote, the defining public health crisis of our time. He has used his position and megaphone to highlight just how the country is doing and where it falls short particularly in the treatment of young people who are suffering. It's a complicated topic, worthy of discussion, and not just in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. A warning to our listeners, today's Equal Time talks about serious issues and topics, including mental health awareness, what is and is not being done, and also suicide and suicide prevention. Thank you. How can the mental health of young people in America be protected from influences that could harm? Julie Scalfo is executive director of Get Media Savvy, a nonprofit initiative devoted to fighting media chaos and defending humanity. In her work and in a recent column, she offers advice for solutions. Though she notes that legislators, through efforts like the proposed bipartisan Protecting Kids on Social Media Act, are taking some steps in that direction. She calls them, quote, attempts to plug holes in a dike. A problem this big demands more, she believes. Julie joins Equal Time to talk about what's needed from policymakers and the public to tackle the youth mental health crisis and, as she writes, to rebuild our civic fabric. Fostering media literacy may be the key. Welcome to Equal Time, Julie. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Well, you are certainly right in the middle of topics that are in the news right now. In a recent column in the San Francisco Chronicle, you wrote that it's not just social media or the internet. It's the larger media environment in which our children live. That's causing a lot of challenges and problems. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, media environment is the all of the inputs that come into our perception from different types of media. So when you were living in an era before there was electronic media, all of the mediums that we use to communicate were slow, right? You had to read, you communicated verbally. And once we started having electronic media, messages got faster and faster. Now, ever since the era of the internet, we are inundated with information 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's really overstimulating us and causing a lot of uh, changes to our brain and our, um, you know, neurobiology. Everybody can relate to that, I think. 
talk a little bit about media literacy, because uh, we're going to be talking about that when we're talking about the work that you're doing with your organization. But I think it would help if we define just what you mean by that. Right now, most adults in this country walk around with handheld devices. We all have phones. We often have laptops. We have multiple email accounts. And so we're getting information from multiple different streams um, every day. And even if we don't talk about our personal devices, we live in an immediate environment now where there are screens everywhere. There are screens in elevators. There are screens in taxi cabs, in gas pumps, um, in waiting rooms. And there are multiple screens. And each screen is giving us sometimes not just one one stream of information, but multiple streams of information. On cable news, you don't just have the anchor talking, you have scroll across the bottom, you have scroll across the side. And the brain has to shift in order to process each single one of these. And we're basically now giving more information than our brains are actually biologically wired to process. So it's causing stress to our brains and our bodies, it's causing fatigue, and it's also contributing to some emotional problems. So that's the Media environment that we're living in. That's the media environment we're raising our children in. And we need to step back and sort of think about what the effects are on us individually and civically as a society. Well, we know that May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, has described mental health as, quote, the defining public health crisis of our time, especially when it comes to young people. Would you agree, and how would you connect that situation to the role of media and the media environment that you just laid out for us? You know, Mary, I've been a journalist for a long time, and I used to work at Newsweek, and it was there that I started covering what was called the teen depression crisis, and that turned into a problem with suicide in college students, and as I started um diving into some of the causes of suicide, I ended up writing quite a bit about the role of social media in exacerbating mental health problems. And what I saw um, later, I was at the New York Times, I got really alarmed because the same problems that were affecting college students began affecting kids at younger and younger ages. And we also began allowing kids to use devices at younger and younger ages. And so the um, variables that contribute to good mental health and the variables that contribute to bad mental health are kind of the same and they've been around a long time. But what's happened is we've begun allowing young children to get exposed to things that are not particularly good for mental health at younger and younger ages. So I absolutely agree with the Surgeon General. He actually put out a health advisory um, uh, last year about teen mental health, and he has been one of the few public health officials who have spoken out publicly about the need to limit access to the internet and social media for young children. And he specifically says he does not think children should go online before the age of 13, and I agree with him. Julie, you've talked about today's 24-7 firehose of content and how it's aimed at our brains. So why and how does it cause some people to think that they're under siege? What evidence is there of that? So 
Scientists know that if we experience a threat, it affects our brains in certain ways. And if you perceive a threat, even if you're not actually facing, you know, a lion in the middle of um, a prairie, but you are watching a scary movie or you are listening to an audio recording of a volcano eruption, uh, your brain is this amazing machine that knows to go into fight or flight. And what's happening is that we are now getting so many stories about scary things or bad things or difficult things that we are having our fight or flight symptom uh, system act overactivated. And so our brains almost like live in fight or flight now. And as a result of that, we are experiencing emotional trauma and technology, um, meaning the internet, wireless technology, portable devices, they allow us to get exposed to these types of information um, on a 24-7 basis and at scale. So we have an entire population now who is experiencing symptoms of trauma, experiencing emotional challenges. And actually, there's one study that came, I believe, out of Japan that found it took disconnecting from screens for five days for the brain to go back to normal levels of hormones, for the cortisol to sort of go back to a stasis level. So, you know, this is happening on a neurobiological level, and it's taken a while for the research to catch up to what's happening. But I think in the coming years, we're going to see more and more of this and understand a lot better the specific brain function that's taking place. That makes perfect sense. And I'll bet that a lot of our Equal Time listeners are reviewing their own time on devices and saying, oh, I wonder if there's a problem there. Is my brain getting affected? Well, you aren't the only one taking notice. Congress is, and they're taking some steps. They have the proposed bipartisan Protecting Kids on Social Media Act. And that would establish a national minimum age for social media use and require tech companies to get parents' consent before creating accounts for teens. Could you talk a little bit about that, what you think about it, and other actions that the states are taking? So, you know, I wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle that all these efforts are really just attempts to plug holes in the dike because we need a massive shift if we are going to get society back on track. And I agree with the Surgeon General that there is no sort of greater health crisis than the emotional problems and the mental health issues we now see happening to our children. Um, it is unthinkable, but um, we now are in a, the, the reality of American society is that the number two killer of all 10 year olds is suicide. I mean, think about that. It's just it's, it's unfathomable. It's just horrible. So to have good mental health, we need a healthy information environment. We also need people to know um, how to limit and why they should limit their media intake. Um, and that's something called media literacy, right? Media literacy is the idea of understanding how you're affected by media, how all media have built-in biases, and why you need to sort of be um, the driver of what media you allow into your life. Um, but to get back to your question about um, these, these legislative efforts, don't get me wrong. Um, while I say they are just efforts to plug holes in the dike, we need to plug every hole as fast as we can. So this Protecting Kids Online, Kids on Social Media Act, it's a bipartisan effort. Um, it says that um, teens 13 to 18 would have to have their parents approve them making accounts, but that nobody under 13 um, can make accounts. But 
Those kids could still look at the content online, but our country still does not have anything approximating, for example, what they have in Europe with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, we need pri basic privacy controls. Um, privacy is a human right, and right now, big tech companies are taking our data and they are using it um, as tools to sell information to us. And there's way too much evidence that the type of information they're selling back to us are narratives of hate, are narratives that fan the flames of fear, of division. Um, and there are even lawsuits now, for example, against Meta for the role it played in contributing to genocide um, because it amplifies um, stories of hate. So um, these legislative efforts are just a beginning, and hopefully there'll be a lot more. What would you like to see? What role can and should legislation play in all of this? Because, you know, we have a lot of concerns about First Amendment issues uh, and other things that are different from other countries. So what can they do? What should they do? So we absolutely have um, First Amendment rights, and I believe in the First Amendment. And as a journalist, of course, I want information to be widely available. But at the same time, I think it's critical that we realize not all information is created equal, and we're not going to be able to have a robust uh, system of journalism that serves the public good if we don't hold platforms accountable for what they promote. It doesn't make sense that professional journalists like you and me have to spend all of our time and energy and our employers make sure that we um, don't libel anybody, that we um, correct mistakes, that we work hard to make sure information is accurate. And then you have social media platforms who have complete um, uh, freedom to uh, publish whatever they want and not have to be accountable for that. So I think we need to um, overhaul Section 230. Um, any listeners who are not familiar with that, Section 230 is a law that basically um, gives social media platforms license to publish whatever the heck they want and um, be uh, immune from any prosecution. And that has allowed them to write algorithms that promote hate speech, that promote racism, that promote violence. Um, I would like to see reform there. I would like to see something like GDPR so that basic privacy regulations are built in. Um, and I certainly think um, it's a good start to um, get some of these um, design, they're, they're called design code acts that force social media companies to um, build into their design protections for kids where they're not targeting kids with certain advertising um, and certain types of content. It's interesting that you brought up hate speech when you were speaking just now. Uh, we've just passed the one-year anniversary of the killings of African-American shoppers in a Buffalo supermarket by a teenager who claimed that he was influenced by online content and found like-minded people there. Now, of course, uh, particularly the families of those he killed would characterize that as uh, an excuse to escape responsibility for actions that this person did commit. But still, we see people, including the young National Guardsman, accused of leaking classified uh, government intelligence. And also, he also reportedly uh, was in engaging in hate speech. And they're consuming and distributing this kind of content. Are there ways to counter these online influences? So... 
you know, you're asking the million dollar question of how we can prevent hate speech from spreading online. You know, hate, the idea of hating, the idea of in-groups and out-groups is as old as human beings. And, you know, people can be influenced to have really crazy thoughts of of all types um, without the internet. But the internet, and especially social media, allows these ideas to reach um, numbers of people in a much faster, more efficient way. And so what we're seeing is the type of um, bad influence uh, being spread at scale and people who maybe aren't um, as well connected to their communities and don't have as many in-person relationships with other people are spending hours and hours behind the screen where they're getting messages not only that there are other you know groups who are boogeymen and are out for them um, but that they're under siege and so you see time and time again I mean even look at the case of Ahmad Arbery who was murdered for jogging um, but the men who killed them perceived that he was a threat. They called the police. The police said, he's not a threat. He's not doing anything illegal. And they still believed um, that he was a threat. And so over and over again, the media and, and journalists um, promote narratives of conflict. And those types of narratives um, are sticky. They make people spend more time online, but they don't always accurately represent the world. So I think the way we need to make change here is um, not just by plugging holes in the dike, but by really improving the media environment. And that will take Congress passing laws to hold platforms accountable. That will take professional journalism institutions um, stopping this obsession with clicks and um, stickiness and going back to reasonable um, pre presentation of facts without so much emotional and narrative drama. And it's also going to take restraint on the part of all of us um, by not spending as much time online and not sort of um, feeding into these online debates. That leads us right to the work of your organization, Get Media Savvy. So could you talk about that, Julie? What kind of work do you do and what kind of results are you getting? So Get Media Savvy was started because I realized um, in reporting about the mental health problems, in watching this breakdown in civic society, in reading um, white paper after white paper that described the truth decay in society and the decline of, of um, intelligent civic participation, that we needed a massive culture shift and that most people don't read white papers and don't have, you know, people have jobs and lives and they don't have time to sort of read all the details. Um, so the goal of Get Media Savvy is to create a national movement so that Americans support common sense legislation to hold tech platforms accountable so that we begin to have media literacy education as part of mandatory education in schools, K through 12, and also to help people see that we need to stop um, buying into this idea that a few people in Silicon Valley want us to believe that tech is the solution to all problems. Tech can be fun. It can be helpful in some circumstances, um, but it's not always the best solution. And in fact, when you introduce technology into human environments, that it often comes at a cost. And sometimes that cost outweighs the benefits. So we need to think really carefully about where and when we add technology. So what are you doing with uh, Get Media Savvy? What kind of programs and, uh, and, and what's been the reception? 
So Get Media Savvy is just getting off the ground. We have an incredible board of founding advisors who are working with us to sort of translate um, existing media literacy campaigns into more accessible um, uh, bits of information to get out there to the public. Uh, we are helping a group of parents organize something called Moms Against Media Addiction, where parents can turn and get accessible information about when it's appropriate to introduce technology to your kids and how to do it in a way that's safe. Um, and we are sort of working behind the scenes with a lot of different uh, groups who are deeply engaged in this issue, uh, giving advice to, unfortunately, um, the thousands now of parents who have lost children due to experiences online on social media, to uh, members of Congress who are working uh, for legislation, and to help raise the profile of these issues in the public so that people understand why they should not buy you know, a clip-on um, cell phone, iPad holder for their kid's stroller, but instead allow them to have interactive, real-world experiences um, with humans. Yeah, earlier we talked about just the experience of sitting the child on the lab and reading to him, her, or them. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, if you want your child to grow up and be emotionally and socially well-adjusted, to be an, uh, an avid reader, there is no technology in the world that's better than plopping that kid on your lap, opening up a board book, and wrapping your arms around them and reading to them. Um, we know this from centuries of human experience. And somebody out there is trying to design an app to teach your toddler to read. And guess what? If you present that app to them, we know that their brain is not going to form in exactly the same way um, that it would if they have the tactile, physical experience of being with you. And so it might take another decade until researchers can identify the specific neurobiological process that's different. But what I'm saying and what Get Media Savvy is saying to parents, and many um, scientists are now saying this, don't wait for more research. Um, take steps now to limit your or young child's interaction with media, um, reach out to your school. And on our website, there's going to be lots of resources available soon. It's getmediasavvy.org. Um, but learn from the experts about when it's appropriate to inter introduce technology to your child and when it's not. And center um, real world human relationships. That's what the Surgeon General has called for. That's the best thing to do, not only for your individual emotional health, but also for good um, civic society and community relationships. I see also that the American Psychological Association has recently issued its first ever guidance on social media use in adolescents, and they have a roundup of recommendations, I believe a top 10 for educators, policymakers, tech companies, and parents aimed at helping teens engage with the tech in a safe and positive way. Is that a positive step, do you believe? I have to tell you, Mary, I was shocked by the APA statement because like other big professional organizations, they keep saying that um, you know, social media can be both beneficial and harmful. And I think that that is a very strange perspective. There is an abundance of evidence that social media is harmful for children um, in terms of their emotional development and 
in terms of potential risks. Um, the United States Department of Justice even has a task force devoted to um, crimes committed against children online. And so why even let them go into that space if there are so many risks? Um, the benefits um, the only benefits I've ever seen evidence of are if a child already has a relationship with a relative or a family member who's at a long distance and they can keep in touch with them, that certainly is a nice benefit. And there are certainly several examples of individuals who may have an identity um, that is very marginalized and they don't have a lot of people in their um, physical community they feel connected to, they may be able to find a friend online. And so those are the two benefits. But the vast majority of people who are going online are being exposed to things that hurt them. And we know this from the social media company's own data. Remember the Facebook files that the Wall Street Journal published last year, where they found Facebook's own internal data showed that teen girls who were spending time on their sites were becoming more depressed, were developing eating disorders, and were having huge um, self-esteem problems from spending time on that platform. So I don't think it's worth it. And frankly, I was shocked by the APA statement. It's interesting, too, that even when parents and adults say they will monitor the use of, of their children, well, they're so much more adept at so, so many of these uh, tech devices than parents. So it's really hard to keep track. Mary, I'm a parent of three kids, and when my first son was born, there were no iPhones, and Mark Zuckerberg worked at a small company called The Facebook. And when my second son was born and I took him to pre-K, I watched all the parents drop off their little child and train them to turn around and smile for photos because they started posting pictures of their kids every day. And my third son is now growing up in a world of TikTok. And even though I deleted TikTok from his phone, people still send him TikToks. And YouTube has moved to the short videos. So that's replicating the TikTok model. So we are as parents unable to monitor every last thing they see. When your child opens up um, a video, you might see them watching a cooking video, but you have no idea what that algorithm will eventually send him to. And it is impossible for us to monitor it all. Believe me, I've tried. And so I don't want to sound like I'm blaming parents because it's really hard. And I don't think this is something that parents can solve alone. But we do have a role. And one of the best and simplest solutions is just delay, delay, delay their access to the devices until these tech platforms are legally required to protect your child as well. Now, some listeners might say, we're fine in my family. We use it well. There's no problem here. My kids are mentally healthy. I am mentally healthy. Why is it a challenge even for those who believe that all is good, that they have no problems uh, with their kids or with themselves, and they have, uh, they, they're totally media literate, so they'll say, well, this doesn't affect me. Why does it affect everyone? You know, I um, met a mom this week from an affluent family 
who is able to provide her um, children with lots of resources in the real world, lots of activities and sports. And she was having a a normal, um, beautiful family dinner last year. They all watched the snowfall outside and took pictures. And an hour later, her son was dead. And the reason her son was dead was because he bought drugs online um, from someone on Snapchat and it had fentanyl in it. And the um, problem with fentanyl drugs being sold on Snapchat is something that Snapchat has even said that they're concerned about and they're working to dismiss. And but the point is, as a parent, you know, you cannot control everything that happens online and you might think you do. um, But, you know, the kids keep coming up with apps to hide the apps that they've downloaded. And you don't know about the conversations taking place. I once was looking through my um, son's phone and discovered that a girl in another country had written him a letter to let him know that she was suicidal. So I didn't even know how he had connected to this girl, but I suddenly had the question, do I track down this girl's parents? You know, how can I go to sleep at night knowing that this 12 year old is thinking of of killing herself? So there's a lot that parents don't know. And if you don't think your child has been exposed to something, then you have not looked through um, the sites that they have visited. And unfortunately, because social media companies are not required to disclose their algorithms, um, we will never know all the things that our children are seeing. And I want to stop right here for our listeners, because we are talking about some serious issues here, uh, because we just want to confront what's out there. But I want to say that we do have in this country, a 988 suicide and crisis lifeline. And it's a United States based suicide prevention network of, of hundreds of crisis centers that provide 24-7 service. So that's 988. And just to say, uh, we are talking about some serious issues, but that's what exists right now. And so we thought that Equal Time should tackle them. But I just wanted to put that out there for people who are saying, this is getting pretty heavy, uh, but, but this is what's going on now. So I wanted to also say that since we have been delving into these serious issues, I think that in these times, which are very serious times, and even unsettled political times, that Americans are looking for reasons for hope. What are they, Julie? Mary, I actually have a lot of hope right now. As you um, said at the top of the podcast, this is a moment where people are really beginning to wake up to all these issues. And I am hopeful that our legislators are finally realizing they need to put humanity um, before the profits of tech companies and are recognizing that tech platforms um, need to have some regulations, just as every other type of communication media has been regulated throughout this country's history, um, and that they can't just have unlimited access to um, our brains to run psychological experiments as they have done, um, but there need to be limits in place. And so I'm hopeful that uh, more Americans will support legislation that holds tech platforms accountable. I am hopeful that more Americans will realize that the um, potential costs of allowing our kids to have uh, so much technology so young is not really worth it and that they can delay um, giving their kids 
phones. There's a whole group of parents who've organized something called Wait Until Eighth, and it's a pledge that parents are taking to not get their kids' phones until they're in eighth grade. And I'm also hopeful that more educators are waking up to the fact that if they um, bring the cell phone into the classroom and give the kids homework assignments to do on their phones, um, that they are actually inviting children into a world where there are so many distractions competing for their attention um, that it's harder for them to be students. So I feel actually really energized. Um, the reception for Get Media Savvy has been overwhelming. I can't actually keep up with all the requests and opportunities um, to keep building resources, uh, but I'm really hopeful that this is a moment now as a country that we are ready to step back from all of the nonsense in the media and the, the narratives that are all about fear and hate. And, you know, look at look at our neighbors, look at our communities. Um, I'm just, I, I live in New York City and I'm so grateful every day that my kids are at a great school. We have wonderful neighbors. We live with people from all walks of life. Um, you know, I live in Brooklyn. So there's, there's a lot of peace and we all love each other. We love um, eating each other's foods and socializing together. And uh, we need to limit the media um, the consumption that we all have every day so that we're not allowing these stories about, um, you know, infrequent incidences to become so dominant in our minds. That's actually not the dominant story. The real story is that things are pretty good here. That's a, that's a good, uh, a good storyline. We know that there are inequities in this world, but we do have to look at the positive and ways that we can make this world better. Now you knew this question was coming, Julie. What question have I not asked that I should have? because you have something that you need to say on that topic. So I guess the question that you didn't ask is what can people do right now? And what people can do right now is they can go into their children's schools and they can insist that um, they stop introducing technology unnecessarily into the classroom. Um, that's the number one thing I think parents can do to help their children right now. Um, the second thing that they can do is to limit, limit, limit screen time for young children. It's not necessary. They have their whole adult lives to be stuck on email and the phone the way we are. Um, let them grow up in the real world. And the third thing they can do um, uh, is I invite them to sign up at www.getmediasavvy.org. Um, we're going to be so gentle on your inbox, but as we have uh, new resources available, we'll send updates and we're going to connect them to the leading thinkers on media literacy, um, updates on legislation, and we can't wait to uh, be part of a national movement to make our media environment healthy again. Well, you had to get a plug in there, but I'm not mad at you, Julie. I tried, I tried. <laughs> well, this is important work. And I find as an adult, it is difficult. You get that little note, how long you've been on social media for the week. And if it's risen, you feel a little guilty. Uh, and then you have your to-do list of things you want to accomplish in this world. And you do sometimes wonder, you know, am I really not doing some things that I need to be doing in the real world because it's so much easier to get lost. Uh, and what is that doing for my mental health? And what kind of example am I setting? So, and as tech and AI and all of these other things get more and more sophisticated, I do believe this is the beginning of the conversation and certainly not the end. What do you think, Julie? 
I couldn't agree more, Mary. I mean, I think an interesting way to, to think about media and technology is that your attention is a commodity. And we know from centuries of research that whatever you pay attention to is going to shape your world, right? If you are focused on the positive, if you are paying attention to all the good things in your community, you're going to feel safe, you're going to feel um, connected. And if you focus on the good things in your personal relationships, you're going to feel good. If you're focused on the bad things, you're going to feel bad. And so we are at a moment now where the availability of social media and these algorithms that they are spending billions of dollars to get the top designers to write algorithms that hijack your brain and try to get you to stay there as long as possible. And so if you allow that to happen, if you choose to spend 10 hours a week on social media, and from the data, we know that teenagers are spending five hours a day, six hours a day. That's five or six hours a day or 10 hours a week that you're not spending listening to music, reading books, calling a, a loved one, calling an elder, cooking, gardening. You know, there's a million other things that you can be doing. And those other things are actually more enriching. They're more emotionally rewarding and they will help you be better connected to loved ones. So, um, you know, it's just the beginning. You're right. Talk about being positive. What a positive note to end on. I want to thank you so much, Julie Scalfo, for being a guest on Equal Time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you spending time on this. So what's keeping me up at night? I recently had a speaking engagement at a place that, like too many other places in America, was the site of a mass shooting. Before I traveled there, I checked out the security protocol and still couldn't shake an uneasiness. Things we never thought twice about are now part of daily calculations we make. We accept it and move on. But do we really? One Equal Time listener said he worries about how artificial intelligence is changing the landscape of jobs and employment, and no one is doing anything about it. Now he's got me worried. So, what's keeping you up at night, listeners? And what questions do you have especially about issues of policy and politics, seen through a lens of social justice. Tweet me at mcurtisnc3 and check out my columns at rollcall.com. I want to thank the Fiscal Note Executive Institute for their partnership and support of today's programming. They provide a community for senior executives at global companies across industries to come together to discuss top issues affecting organizations, including diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility. To learn more about their efforts, visit executiveinstitute.fiscalnote.com. And I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music